Would we hire the Apostle Paul as a pastor? Perhaps you've seen some version of the parody of a rejection letter from a church or a mission board. The letter provides a long list of reasons why they have chosen not to hire Paul as a minister of the gospel. Things such as, your preaching lacks originality and you lack charisma. Your education is really sketchy. That informal homeschool setting in the desert with no recognized theologian providing instruction. We just don't think that's wise. And how can you claim to be above reproach when you are so often on the wrong side of the law? How many imprisonments? How many scourgings? After a long list of similar disqualifying concerns, the church or mission agency thanks the apostle that he's uh, submitted his resume, but they inform him, I'm sorry, we are going to look elsewhere. One such parody is signed by J. Flavius Flufflehead. <laughs> All humor aside... The church at Corinth was seriously uncertain about Paul as a minister. This wasn't humor. This was real. They just weren't certain about him. By adopting and applying the ways and means and philosophical models and filters of their godless culture, bringing that into the church, well, Paul just didn't get very high marks. We're not making this up. This is like the Apostle Paul. They just did not put him very high on the scale. Unlike the popular philosophers and rhetoricians who frequented Corinth, Paul failed to employ those theatrical, clever, entertaining preaching methods. And they didn't really like it. And beyond form, they also struggled with the content of his sermons. Yes, the church had indeed responded to the gospel of the crucified Messiah. Yes, in His grace, God had indeed saved them from their sin, granted to them life in Christ. But now they wanted Paul to step up his game. They wanted Paul to come out of the shadows of that lowly, can we just whisper it on the side, sometimes embarrassing, gospel of Christ, crucified and risen this crucified Savior, this talk of resurrection in a world, well, that was not popular at all. They wanted him to move up into higher forms of human wisdom that were popular in their day. To fit his teaching, and indeed even his style, to what was more acceptable in Corinthian culture. Many in the church had set themselves up as Paul's judge this way, determining that he was inferior to Apollos. There were some that were saying he was inferior to Cephas, and others that just wanted nothing to do with any of these teachers at all, it seems, and they claimed to follow Christ. But Paul addresses this issue in chapter 3, as we looked at this last week. Chapter 3, remember again at verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, 
Are you not being merely human? That is, are you not just thinking like the world? Aren't you using categories outside the church, bringing them inside the church and judging us this way? Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Notice that word. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Apollos and I are together on this. We're in the same work. And each is going to receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. We are working together, partnering together to proclaim this gospel. And you can see some people hearing this message in the church, with, as you can see, with a grumpy face on. I don't like this Paul guy. He doesn't add up. I prefer Apollos. Paul's saying, we're on the same team. We're working on the same project. You need to take this to heart. From various angles then, Paul rebukes the factionalism in the Corinthian church in these first three chapters. But now he comes to what is the most touchy matter between them. And that was, frankly, him. Their tepid response to Paul jeopardized the gospel's influence in their lives, and it dirtied the display window through which the world was to look upon the glories of Christ and His saving grace in the church. This matter was not comfortable for Paul. I think we're right to conclude that. And I would, I would defend that idea from the standpoint that we detect that this, we detect this by the, the subtleties that he's employing to get to this point. We also see this by how long it's taking him to build up to addressing the problem between them. The way the church was responding to him as their evangelist. So drawing from this instruction here in chapter 4, we glean two valuable principles in our pursuit of unity and fidelity as a local church. Not that we face this particular challenge, but there are principles that come out of this. And in my title, I'm not looking at the whole scope of the passage, but trying to just be a bit provocative. But in a sense, that's what this is about. How do you judge a pastor? Now, Paul wasn't exactly the pastor of the Corinthian church, of course, but he was the minister of the gospel that had come to them, that had led them to the Lord, and now there's this continuing rift between them. He just doesn't measure up. And it jeopardizes the message. In fact, everything that leads them to judge him is off track. Now, as hard as that is, we got to talk about this. we got a problem. And I want to address that problem, Paul says here in chapter 4. And we learn by principle, first of all, in the first four verses, that pastors must serve the church in keen anticipation of their final accounting before God. Verse 1, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is how one should regard us, that how they were regarding him is, is at issue. This is how one should regard us. Two ideas, servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. 
So Paul says, you're right. I do not calibrate my ministry as do the pagan teachers that are so popular in your world. We, that's Paul, Apollos, Peter, we, these co-laborers, we have a twofold orientation. The one is you should think about us as servants of Christ. I didn't play very well in Corinthian society to be talking about them as servants. And we'll get to that later in the chapter, someday, God willing. But they, they, they thought of themselves as kings, not servants. And that's how Paul should look at himself. He should have a little more self-confidence, Paul. But he says, no, think of us as servants of Christ. This is our orientation in everything that we do. And secondly, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. This emphasizes the content of their preaching. And that content hinges on two words, on these two words here, stewards. Don't think stewardess, someone serving us in an airplane or something like that, but a steward in the ancient context was a slave who managed an entire household. This was an individual with tremendous responsibility and with that tremendous accountability. Secondly, the mysteries of God. That is the truth that God kept hidden until exactly the right time but has now been made clear through revelation. So remember we've talked about this. It's not from down up, but from up down. It's not man reasoning up to God, but God declaring His revelation, His truth. This is what I steward. This is my responsibility to proclaim to you not what is in touch with the philosophies of our day, but what God has revealed as truth. I'm going to take some time here, if you work your way back to chapter 2, just to continue stitching the book together, reminding, these, reminding us of these themes. But notice chapter 2 and verse 1 in light of what he's just said. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. We are servants of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom the philosophies of the day for i decided to know nothing among you except jesus christ and him crucified and i was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom again the wisdom of man that's acceptable in corinth but rather in the demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of god Yet among the mature, that is, among true Christians, we do impart wisdom, <clears throat> although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. We, we impart truth that God has revealed, which He decreed before the ages for our glory. This is always in the mind of God, always the plan of salvation, but now has been made clear Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, here's revelation, no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 
So the Spirit of God has revealed this truth of salvation in Christ to us, and this was my message. This will be my message. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. So I don't operate from a base of human philosophy. I'm a manager. I'm an overseer. I'm a steward of Christ. And my job is to teach you what the Holy Spirit has revealed. The milk and the solid food of the good news of Christ crucified and risen. The milk, the declaration of that saving message, and the solid food of its application in every nook and cranny of my life. What is it that motivates Paul, Paulus and every legitimate minister of the gospel? We find it here in verse 2, chapter 4. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful to what? Faithful to God and the gospel message. Apollos, Peter, and I strive not to be innovative or original or relevant by the world's standards. Paul says, no, our God-given task is to serve Christ faithfully, to fulfill our calling as stewards of the good news of Christ crucified and risen. It's that simple. Yes, that's what I'm preaching. And you should recognize that it's the right thing. So it's Christ I'm putting forward, not self. It's the truth God reveals, not philosophies of people who have not the illuminating presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And this strong sense of accountability that weighs heavily on Paul as a steward of the gospel, he now links to the negative judgment that they are drawing concerning him. It gets really personal here at verse 3. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. This is my stewardship. This is my calling I really don't care a whole lot about the fact that you don't judge me well. They were judging him as inadequate, as misguided, as unenlightened. Factions in the church lobbying against him, dismissing his ministry to them. And Paul knows, dismiss my ministry to you and what I revealed to you, or what I preached to you of the revelation that, of God you go there and you're going to lose the gospel. This church will be destroyed, 3.16 and 17. That's a danger. But please understand, your negative judgments of me are a small thing. When he says that, he's not saying that those judgments don't hurt. They do. But what he's saying is, I don't put any value in them. Their judgment and critique of him, their ridicule and dismissal of him was of no consequence in the big scheme of things. Nor was any human court, we have the phrase here, the Greek is difficult because it doesn't work for us, but it says a, a human day. I'm not concerned about a human day. We speak of getting our day in court. Paul is saying, and I don't know if that's where that phrase comes from. It may be right from here. I don't know. But Paul is saying, in essence, I don't need my day in court. I don't even ultimately care what your judgment is. I will have my day before the throne of God. 
And that is all that concerns me as I minister to you and to others in Christ's name. That day is coming. I'm fully aware of it. That's what matters. So what you think, small stuff. Notice verse 3 in that last phrase. In fact, I do not even judge myself. This, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, is a clear display of Christian maturity. I don't even judge myself. That is, I don't even stand as the ultimate judge of my own motives and heart. This is solid food. This is the application of the gospel into every nook and cranny of his life. We see it on display here. When a boy or girl is arguing with mom and dad, I did nothing wrong, I'm right. When a dispute between husband and wife devolves into an argument about guilt and innocence and self-defense, when a pastor thinks that he's critiqued unfairly, or church members believe they've been wronged or misunderstood or unfairly criticized, in all such situations, how skillful we are at defending ourselves. How capable we are of insisting that we know everything there is to know about ourselves. And we see ourselves with perfect vision. Let's take a note from a mature believer in Christ. Paul says, I don't even know myself. I'm not the one ultimately who passes judgment. I'm not the final judge of my motives. Now hang in there, because we can take this the wrong direction. Paul does indeed render judgment of himself in one sense. Verse 4, he does that. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So he searches his conscience. And his conscience bears witness that the criticism of the Corinthians against him are, are invalid. He cannot think of anything that he's done that is sinful or wrongly ordered in his ministry. He's searching his conscience. But he ends with, in the end, it's the Lord's decision. I may not know my own heart. I may not know my own motives. Let's head down a little trail here, off the main path. Every pastor, every Christian leader, everyone who speaks for God will have people who criticize, if not defy, if not hate him. And I can say that from early, early days of teaching a fourth grade Sunday school class. I got opposition from the students. No matter where it is, no matter what level, that's going to happen. A brain surgeon is going to cause some pain to people along the way, and they're not going to all like it. And similarly, a soul surgeon is going to stir up animosity and suffer disapproval. It's inevitable. But what shepherds must learn is to ask, is this criticism, is this opposition, is this animosity revealing sin in me? I may be able to see with 20-20 vision how people are unfair, unjust in their criticism, but what does it reveal in my own heart? 
This is a skill, an effort that we must learn. And Paul had learned that. He is applying, he's, he's appealing to his conscience. And as I think of my relationship with you, Corinthian church, I can't think of anything that I've done wrong. Your criticisms of me are unjust. But I don't judge my own heart, the Lord does. Searching the conscience. Some enemies of Charles Spurgeon famously threatened to proclaim secrets about the pastor that would defame him if he did not cease his opposition of their evil cause. And Spurgeon famously responded, they can write everything they know about me across the sky. A clear conscience. I know I've done nothing wrong. So Paul does judge his own heart. And let us affirm that honest self-analysis of the conscience is crucial. It is not, however, decisive. Searching the conscience, crucial, never ultimately decisive. It is the Lord who judges me. And that's not, we know Paul, we've got to give him the credit for sure on this. That's not just dismissive. You know, I'm God's man, your judgment's false. I just realize, he's saying, I'm going to face God. And that looms large. Your judgment of me, not so much. So, as we analyze this response, there's three sources of assessment for a minister of the gospel. There's the judgment of others today, the assessment of others now. There is secondly, the judgment of conscience now. And there is thirdly, the judgment of God on the final day. It was quite clear which one mattered most to Paul, which is why he served as he did. Others, it's not a popularity contest. Conscience, he was not the sovereign judge of his own heart. God, it was the final assessment of the Lord that motivated Paul to minister with fidelity. To keep at it day after day as a servant of Christ and as a steward of the truth God had revealed to his people. One ear deaf to his critics, one ear attuned to the final well done good and faithful servant. So we learn from Paul's example that pastors must serve the church. Christian leaders must serve in keen anticipation that we will stand and give account to the Lord. And uniquely so in leadership. It, it is a humbling thought, a fearful thought in the right and best sense of the term. But second, now shifting at verse 5, he focuses on the church, where we learn here in verses 5 through 7 that churches must defer to God's final judgment of their pastors. Churches must defer to God's final judgment of their pastors, to rest in that. Verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. That's pretty personal. He's saying, stop judging me before the Lord stands in as the final judge, judging them, him in the wrong sense. He said this uh, very pointedly also to, uh, to the Romans, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? 
It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This they need to take to heart. Paul is indeed serving Christ. So they need to be careful that they don't judge him, but wait upon the judgment of the Lord in matters that, they, that cannot be judged and cannot be determined. The verse continues, verse 5, the Lord will come and the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. It reminds us of verses 13 and following of chapter 3. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. The day of the Lord will make it clear. It, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a ward. If anyone, anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What do you build on the foundation? There is an assessment on that day that the Lord appears. So brothers and sisters at Corinth, I love you. I'm laboring for your good. But you need to recognize you're treading on thin ice. Rendering this judgment of my motives and my ministry is getting ahead of things. Step back and defer to the judgment of God ultimately. You may be judging me in a way that is, it's, it's possible that the way you're judging me is not what God is going to decide. Think about that. So just imagine, and this is imaginary, believe me, but just imagine an award ceremony in heaven. We have no idea what it's going to look like. But just think, if you're, you're a member that was in the Corinthian church, and you were pretty free to criticize Paul's ministry. You were quick to express your disapproval of him. You were an Apollos guy or gal. Apollos was the teacher. Not impressed by how Paul spoke. Not impressed by the content of his sermons. You think probably our church here at Corinth would be better off if Paul just left and went away and didn't bother with us anymore. That's you, but now you're in heaven. And in this award ceremony of sorts, Jesus calls the Apostle Paul forward. And after a number of comments made about Paul's ministry, he says at the end of the day, Paul, well done, good and faithful servant. How do you feel? Ooh. And then the heat rises when Jesus looks at you and says, you're next, come on forward. You feel it? That's what Paul's saying. Don't do that. Don't put yourself in that spot your head is buried in the sand of today. The philosophies, what's acceptable in Corinth, that's how you're judging me. There's going to be a day when we stand before the throne of God. I don't know what that looks like. No one knows what that looks like. But be careful. I mean, he's being really pointed here. Verse 5. Do not pronounce judgment 
before the time, before the Lord comes. He will bring to light things now hidden in darkness. He will disclose the purposes of the heart. Wait for Him. Each one will receive his commendation from God as is appropriate. That day is coming. That should change how our relationship looks. Now, we've got to have a full stop here or we can head off in a really bad direction as a church. So let's work on not misunderstanding. Paul is not saying that a negative judgment of another believer is always wrong. He is not saying that a negative judgment of a pastor is always wrong. In the very next chapter, he's going to rebuke the church for not judging one of their members. That is, not determining that this man was living in sin and needed to be purged from the assembly. So he's clearly not saying that that's wrong. In chapter 5, he's saying you need to do this. This man must be purged from the assembly, which cannot happen unless you render judgment that he's living in sin. Further, Paul says this to pastors who remain entrenched in sin. To pastors, to, to elders of the church. 1 Timothy 5, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the, so that the rest may stand in fear. I think this links into other passages of understanding how to deal with such an individual but we notice here that there's an elder in the church a pastor of the church and the church is to receive timothy specifically here is to receive accusations or negative judgments that come from two to three people where there is entrenched sin and if that sin is determined there's to be a rebuke that the rest, I think that speaks of the other pastors, will stand in fear. It is never in the cause of Christ does a shepherd have freedom to sin because he's a shepherd. Never in the cause of Christ does a shepherd have the freedom to control and manipulate and harm because he's a pastor. Never. So this is not what Paul is saying. There's some that have used that phrase, don't touch the Lord's anointed. That is saying in their thinking, I'm a pastor, you cannot ever speak ill of me. That's not where Paul's at here. What he's doing is defending the church. He's fighting for her purity. He's fighting for her orthodoxy. He's saying, you pitch me to the curb and you're pitching the gospel to the curb. So defer to God on all that you can, but do not judge pastors on the basis of fleshly or worldly standards. I think these two ideas are coming together here. So where there is objective, unrepentant sin, the church is called to speak for heaven and render corrective judgment. But what Paul rebukes here is that kind of judgment then that concludes what cannot be proven what is just a matter of opinion, style, approach, and the like. Be careful there, he says to the church. So, the, so churches are called to exercise humility and patience with leaders of the assembly. Again, these two points, defer judgment to God in everything that you can, 
and do not judge on the basis of fleshly or worldly standards. Be at peace. On the day God renders judgment, He will reveal all the secret motivations of the heart that fuel every word and every deed. You can be at peace with that. At verse 6 then, Paul pans back on the discussion, analyzes what he's been saying to them. I have applied all these things to myself, to Apollos, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. I've applied these things. I think he's talking here about the metaphors. I've applied these things, the field, the building, the steward of an ancient house. All of this, if you are really dull and not catching this, he says to the readers, I'm talking about me and Apollos. You have got to stop your quarreling. We are on the same team here. And you can rest in the confidence that God will judge our fidelity to Him on the final day. Rest in that. You must learn not to go beyond what is written. What does that mean? Probably a reference to the biblical text that he's been drawing upon for support. On that point, indeed, so they are to boast in the Lord, for instance, not in self. And on that point, their trouble was that they were puffed up. Verse 6 at the end there. They are puffed up inflated with intellectual pride as they sided competitively with this or that teacher. One against another. Don't do that. Don't pit one against another. What is, who's what he talking about? Who's the one? The one is Paul. The other is Apollos. Stop pitting us against each other and forming teams and fighting This was very much in keeping with their culture. Such pride in argumentation and party spirit was rooted in fleshly, worldly arrogance. And so Paul exercises judgment. He rightly judges them because the sin in their lives was not hidden and undetectable. It was on clear display. What they were doing was out of sync with the gospel. Paul judges them. But on the other hand, Paul was rightly judging them because their sin was self-evident, but their pride and quarreling, their self-promotion made that clear, but their judgment of him was illegitimate. You see why this is sensitive. I'm judging you and you need to quit judging me is a hard line. But Paul was absolutely right because in their case it was objective sin. In his case... They were judging what they could not judge on the basis that was faulty. So he addresses that arrogance in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? That's a hard phrase in the original text, and it's a hard phrase then in the translation. But I think he's saying, how on earth do you propose to defend your sense of superiority? How are you superior He'll get into that quite a bit as the chapter unfolds. But he continues, What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as, you did, as if you did not receive it? So, who sees anything different in you? How on earth do you propose to defend your sense of superiority? Their sense of superiority was a bald failure to see their lives as they should. At the center of the problem then was pride. 
remove the root of pride from the heart, and one sees that every good thing is a gift from God's, of God's grace. From the other direction, a true recognition of God's grace as a lavish gift in every area of life humbles us. So in that state of humility, in that state of thanksgiving, we lose the interest to falsely and competitively judge and criticize and critique and scrutinize others. Humility leads us to love them. Even the hard-to-love ones. Those whose consciences are calibrated differently. The Corinthians saw themselves as superior to Paul. And he's going to rebuke them in the rest of the chapter for that sense of superiority. But he starts here by seeking to sever the root of pride by proclaiming the truth that anything that we have in comparison to others is a gift from God. So, chapter 1, verse 31. We cannot go beyond the truth. Jeremiah 9, 24. That written truth let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in self. And don't use me as a proxy to boast in me because you're just boasting in yourself. This all needs to be corrected. In fact, I think we could say by application, boast in yourself. Think highly of yourself. Believe that you can render flawless self-judgment and you will judge your pastors and your fellow church members and your family members and everybody else harshly and sinfully. You just will. Self-centered pride will always go in that direction. Always. But, in contrast, here's the solid food of the gospel that works into the nooks and crannies of life. By contrast, be overwhelmed by the pure, unmerited grace of God to us in Christ. Know to the core of your soul that every capacity you have is a gift from God in His kindness to you, and the root of sinful judgmentalism is thereby severed. And as we minister with one another, may we take to heart the central message of this passage that the Lord will render final judgment of His ministers, and indeed of all of us. Suspicion is not necessarily evil in all cases. But we should choose to believe the best about God's servants. This is the, the primer on judging pastors. And we can risk doing so knowing that God sees all and will render final judgment. If a pastor of a church, if a pastor of this church falls into immoral behavior of any kind, what shall we do? We must stand for Christ, call Him to repentance, never look the other way. Never. But that is very different being calibrated, positioned that way as a church, that's very different from withholding from a pastor or any servant of Christ the benefit of the doubt. That is different from extending the love of Christ to all of His servants, knowing that Christ died for them and has gifted them with His grace. The Corinthians had a list of reasons then that they would not approve Paul. They could not approve him. 
But all this resistance accomplished was to reveal their own immaturity, their own fleshly orientation. The gospel had not penetrated into every nook and cranny of their lives. They were reflecting their culture around. They were reflecting the world from which they were converted. And so the apostle patiently but firmly rebukes them. You cannot continue in this direction. It's really hard because the issue is me. But I'm saying the issue is me because I'm representing Christ. And that's just the way it is. I'm judging you because your sin is objective. You must stop judging me because your judgment is not objective and is wrongly positioned on this world and its culture. And while there may be a rebuke for each of us in Paul's words, the most cutting rebuke should be be directed at anyone who judges Christ as as inferior. They were judging Paul as inferior. Let's not miss the big point here that it is possible for us to reject Christ as inferior. We might chuckle to say that a missionary society or a church would reject the Apostle Paul as pastor or missionary. But it's possible that you're rejecting Christ as Savior. It may not be outright. It may not be bold rejection. Just a dismissal of any sense of need. It's good for mom and dad. I don't need it. Good for my husband, my wife, but I don't need it. Good for, my, good for others. I, I, I'm thankful for it, but I don't need him. Let me say in this moment of truth, you need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You need it. That grace is extended to you in the death that Jesus died to pay the price of all the sins of all who put their trust in Him for salvation. And in Jesus' victorious resurrection. Reject that provision and you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not merely to answer for your unaddressed sin, but for your assessment of Jesus as irrelevant, as inferior, as unimportant. On that day you will know how important this moment right here is. You need Him. Don't turn from Christ today. Come to Him. Come to Him with, as He stands with open arms of grace. His grace extended to you with pure love, with warm invitation. Come to Jesus and live. That's His call. And that is the ultimate horror in rejection, is to reject Christ. Don't do it. Come to Him today. Let's pray.